0: Survey of the Psalms, picking up again where we left off a few weeks ago. We are in week three now of our six-week survey. We'll be looking this week at a couple of Psalms from book two of the Psalms. And so I'll begin with a prayer reading Psalm 47 just to get us started. So here's the word of the Lord from Psalm 47. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. Well, amen. So we'll be looking at the next psalm more in detail this morning, Psalm 48, and then we'll look at Psalm 51. Uh, Before we get into 48, however, I want to say a little bit about who the sons of Korah are. The psalm that I just read was written by the sons of Korah as well as Psalm 48. And I think in order for us to rightly understand What Psalm 48 is telling us, we need to know something about who these men were that wrote this Psalm. So, first of all, um, when the Psalm headings say that the Psalm was written by the sons of Korah, well, we're first of all talking about descendants of this man named Korah, he was a contemporary of Moses and Aaron. And so these men that wrote these psalms, they were not born directly to Korah, but they were descendants of later generations, as some 450 years had passed from the time of Moses to this time when they're writing these psalms during the time of David. Now, you may recall Korah himself is an infamous character in Scripture. Numbers chapter 16 gives to us what is known as Korah's Rebellion. It describes the way that this man Korah led a rebellion along with 250 followers of his own in which they attempted to seize control from Moses and Aaron. Korah was of the tribe of Levi, as were Moses and Aaron, and apparently Korah felt that he was better suited to lead the people than Moses and Aaron were. Now, of course, Mo- Moses and Aaron thought otherwise. More importantly, God thought otherwise, and so what it tells us in Numbers 16 is that ultimately God caused the ground to open up and swallow Korah and his rebels. They were buried alive, thus bringing their lives and rebellion to an end. But apparently, these rebels' wives and children were spared this severe judgment. And so we learn many years later in the history of God's people from First Chronicles chapter 9, that King David appoints Korahites, again, descendants of this man Korah, who were still within the tribe of Levi, this priestly tribe. He appoints these Korahites to various places of service in and around the temple. Some of them doorkeepers of the temple, some of them bakers, in fact, because somebody had to bake the showbread, I suppose. And then some were appointed as singers. And I think it was these men, these descendants of Korah, these singers, part of a temple choir, that also must have been psalm and song writers. Now, we don't know how many psalms or songs that they wrote in total, but we have 11 of them in our Bibles. And I think they're listed on your handout. Now, just one more comment as we think about this. Um, as infamous as this, character Korah was his story is probably largely forgotten by Christians today I had to go back and look it up I didn't remember myself who Korah was and what he had done but interestingly in his New Testament epistle Jude hadn't forgotten about Korah and so Jude says this Jude verse 11 and of course Jude is writing in the context of talking about false teachers in the church And this is what he says, Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, why do I say this? Why do I bring this up? Because I think that this actually magnifies God's grace. Because as infamous as Korah and his rebellion was, So much so that Jude can say that false teachers in the church, I think, deserve the same fate that Korah and his rebels received. Yet God graciously spared Korah's descendants, some that would even many years later become among the authors of Holy Scripture. And I imagine it may have still been difficult for these, certainly not only men, but also women, daughters, and and wives to still carry around with them this name of the scoundrel. And yet, God was gracious to his descendants. I don't think we'll find Korah and his rebels in heaven someday, but God's grace is such that I'm sure we will find these sons and probably also daughters, descendants of Korah that God was gracious to, And probably even in the new earth, we might be able to sing their psalms with them. So, those are the sons of Korah. Now let me read Psalm 48. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified, they fled in alarm. Panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind thou dost break the ships of Tarshish, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish her forever. We have thought on thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. As is thy name, O God, so is thy praise to the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces, that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us unto death. So, Psalm 48 might not be one you're very familiar with, but it's clearly, I think, a Psalm of Zion. It's not the only Psalm of Zion. There are a number of them in the Psalms, and I think if we're going to make sense of this psalm, we need to first of all understand what or where Zion is, because the psalm's original hearers in King David's day would have certainly understood the psalm in their particular context, especially if they lived in Jerusalem, of course, living under the Old Covenant. But then the people of God later on in history, perhaps living in the Babylonian captivity, away from Jerusalem, after the monarchy was kind of had seemingly come to an end, after Jerusalem had been sacked and the temple destroyed, they might have seen Psalm 48 a bit differently than even those during David's day did. So first, I want us to think about perhaps what the psalm was saying to those original audiences, and then I think we might find that for us, in our particular context, under the New Covenant... Psalm 48 might have kind of a further meaning for us. Really, the overall theme of Zion is an important one in the Psalms, but really across the entire Bible. Derek Kidner says this, quote, Zion is more than a local capital. It concerns the whole earth and the whole span of time, End quote. So we're going to attempt to find these contours of Zion this morning both within the old covenant and the new covenant context and then as we go we'll look more closely at the psalm so first of all this place name of Zion which is probably familiar to us it first occurs in the bible in 2nd Samuel chapter 5 when king david led his men to capture this stronghold this jebusite stronghold of Zion And that then became known as the city of David, and then, of course, the city of Jerusalem. When David and his men first captured it, it was a small little thing. But then over time, it grew as David began to kind of annex more land into this city. We find in 2 Samuel chapter 24 that David purchases some nearby land on the top of a hill, some farmland, which had been the location of something called the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan had apparently built this threshing floor on this hill, which is also known as Mount Moriah. And if that rings a bell in your head, that's because that's the place for many years before that, God had told Abraham to go offer his son Isaac. So now David buys this land, brings it within the boundaries of Jerusalem. The walls are expanded Apparently, urban sprawl is not just something that happens in the 21st century. Cities grew even this long ago. And this particular place, now within the city, becomes the place that eventually David's son Solomon builds the temple on that particular place. The same place where Abraham was to offer Isaac becomes the place where Solomon builds the temple, which, of course, would contain the Ark of the Covenant and would be the place where God's glory and presence dwelled among his people. So in this sense, Zion was a physical place where God's rule and presence were made manifest on the earth. It was Jerusalem, the city that contained both the earthly king's palace and the heavenly king's temple. And so this psalm refers to this very clearly. Verses 1, 2, and 3 speak about the city, the holy mountain, palaces, and a stronghold. Verse 8 again speaks of the city, verses 11 through 13 speak again of Zion, and they also refer to specific architectural features, towers, palaces, ramparts, and so forth. But really beyond all these kind of particular physical features, I think the emphasis is really not on uh, the place itself. The glory of Zion is really due to the fact that it's God that dwelled there verse 1, the way it describes the city is that it's the city of our God. It's not just a mountain. It's a holy mountain. It's not just a city. It's the city of the great king. And so Alan Harmon says this, quote, the initial emphasis is not on Zion, but on the God of Zion. And then notice the effect that this divine dwelling place has on invading armies. Verses 4 through 7. It says that even for these armies or kings to look at the city, even just to see the palaces and the stronghold, it says that they were amazed, they are terrified, and they fled in alarm. I don't think it's simply because of the way the city looked that would terrify these invading armies It must have been because it was God that dwelled there. That was what made them turn back in retreat. He makes a comparison in verse 7 that just the same way that the east wind would break these ships of Tarshish that were trading out on the Mediterranean. So God's presence and protection would rout these enemies if they even came close to Jerusalem, to Zion. So, a physical place, for sure, the place where God dwelled. But if you or or I were to sing or read or pray Psalm 48, are those the things that we would really think about? Or even if an early Christian, say, the Apostle John, late in his life, say, in the year A.D. 90, as he's exiled on the island of Patmos, would he be reading Psalm 48 and thinking about these same things? Because even by John's day, Jerusalem had been overrun and sacked by foreign armies multiple times, and the temple had been destroyed twice. God's presence was no longer manifested there in a special way, and there was no longer a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, even in John's day, much less ours. So, when a believer today were to try to pray or sing Psalm 48... Well, I guess we have a few options. One option could be we're just supposed to look backward, kind of uh, wistfully reminisce about Zion's past glory. Or maybe on the other hand, we're supposed to just look forward to maybe some future golden age or some temporal worldly kingdom. Well, I don't think we have to do either one of those. I think we have another option. And I think because of what the balance of Scripture tells us in the New Testament... We can see that um, we ha- can have a much fuller outlook on Zion, I think, for at least three reasons that helps us to understand Psalm 48. And they're on your handout. First of all, Zion is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now we've already seen that in Zion, particularly in the temple, that was the place where God's glory and presence was made manifest on the Earth. But in Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus told the Pharisees that something greater than the temple is here. And, of course, he was talking about himself. John wrote in the prologue of his gospel that when the word, Jesus, became flesh, he dwelt among us. That's tabernacle, that's dwelling place language. It's very much like a temple. And then Jesus, in John chapter 2, spoke of his body, not of a temple, but the temple, saying that if this temple is destroyed, that is his body, he would raise it again in three days. And so Christopher Ashe summarizes like this, quote, On the cross, Jesus was the place where sinful human beings can meet with God without being destroyed. All that Jerusalem symbolized is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the place where we meet with God, the place where we are secure, and the place where God's king rules on the earth, end quote. So Zion is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Zion is foreshadowed in the local church because we understand that God no longer dwells in a temple made by hands. He dwells within his people not just individually by a spirit dwelling within us as individual believers, but God dwells within the church corporately in the person of his Son. Where in the New Testament we we read in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus is not only the cornerstone of Zion, but Ephesians 2, Paul says, that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And then Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 6, that God will dwell among his people corporately, that is, the church. We also see this in the way um, that that the beginning of the book of Revelation, as Keith has been preaching occasionally, the way that John saw Jesus walking among the lampstands. That was symbolizing the way that Jesus is in and among his church. Jesus' presence with us in the church. And the point is, Jesus' presence with us in the church is supposed to be a foreshadowing of the presence we will enjoy with him ultimately in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, because of the presence of Jesus we enjoy now in the church, I think that whenever he is preached, is crucified, risen, and coming again, or whenever a new believer is baptized into him, or whenever we're nourished by Him in the supper, or whenever we enjoy fellowship together, Christian fellowship, we enjoy that because Christ is in you and Christ is in me. I think all of those point us to an understanding that the church is a foreshadowing, a hint, a taste of the real and ultimate Zion that is yet to be revealed, which is the next point. Number three, Zion is waiting to come down from heaven To fill the earth. And we see this truth not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. At the very end of the Bible, of course, in Revelation 21 and 22, John sees this heavenly Jerusalem, this heavenly Zion, descending down from heaven, coming down to fill the earth and be the new creation. And you don't have to flip there, you can, but this was also spoken of in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah writing about this future reality that would happen. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 6, says this, And listen, listen, I think, for the Zion-type language. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, And the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will be the ultimate Zion. It's not confined by any particular geography, it covers the entire earth. And it is described as this future thing that is coming, but the Scripture also tells us that there's kind of a present aspect of Zion as well. There's an already and a not yet. The New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, I'll read an excerpt of Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24, where we also find this Zion language, where the writer to the Hebrews says, if you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them, for they cannot even bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but... You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So there's a lot that could be unpacked there that I'm not going to attempt to do. I don't know if it's still on the church's app, but many years ago, Dan preached a series of the book of Hebrews. And I remember this sermon. It was called Mountain of Fire and City of Joy. If it's still on the app, you should listen to it. But the point that I want to make is that what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us is that it's not just that Zion, this heavenly Zion, is a future reality. He says it's a place where we've already arrived. And the way we've arrived there is that we've come into the church. We've come into this general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And importantly, the way that we've come in is through the means of the blood of its mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. And one more thought. Another psalm of Zion is Psalm 87, and it makes the point that those of us who have come into the church, believers in Christ, haven't just stumbled in by accident. We didn't just find our way here somehow on our own. Psalm 87 says, we were born in Zion. We were born there. Which is to say that all of those who have come to Jesus by grace through faith are natural born citizens of Zion which means that our citizenship cannot be taken away. We are already citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of the great king. Which brings us to our next point, the God of Zion. Let's look again at verses eight through 10 of Psalm 48. Three more things we should notice before we go to Psalm 51. First of all, verse 8, he says, As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. I think this is the experience of faith being strengthened. Yes, these sons of Korah and God's people had seen, or they'd, they'd heard of, let me get the wording right, they'd heard of the wonderful things that God had done in the past for his people. And now it says they've actually seen it. They've seen God's powerful saving acts displayed right in their midst of Jerusalem. And then in verse 9, it's not God's actions that are highlighted as strengthening their faith. It's God's character, where it says, We have thought on thy loving kindness, O God. Now, this is one of God's attributes or perfections that's repeatedly referred to, especially in the Old Testament. This word in English, at least in the NAS, is loving kindness. In the ESV, it's steadfast love. This is an important word. It's a covenant word. And really, I think if there was any Hebrew word you were going to learn, it should be this one. This is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, loving kindness, steadfast love. This is the first time we've seen it in our survey of the Psalms, but it won't be the last. And it's important because this word tells us the degree to which God has committed himself to his people. This is love, in fact, that God has obligated himself to. Which means that it's gracious because we haven't earned it. It means that it's certain because it doesn't depend on our actions or our abilities. It's entirely dependent on the God who is by oath consigned to care for, sustain, and keep his people. Now, how can all that be in one word? Well, look at verse 10. As is thy name, O God, so is thy praise to the ends of the earth. This time, The psalmist is not thinking about God's actions. He's not thinking about God's character, although I guess in a way he is. But he's highlighting God's name. As is thy name, O God, so is thy praise. We know that in Scripture, God's name stands for everything about him. To know and understand God's name is to know and understand who God is. And what is God's name? Well, he's given many names in Scripture. But I think that what the sons of Korah are trying to refer us to in these verses are that time when God revealed his name to Moses. From Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, where it says this, Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers to the children and on grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. This is God's name. This is who God has said that he is to his people. And so the psalmist says, because of what God has declared himself to be, He's worthy of praise, not just from his people Israel, but from the ends of the earth. And we'll come back in a moment to another thought about this psalm, but we need to move on. Turn over the page to Psalm 51. This, of course, is a psalm that's well-known and well-loved, and for good reason. Those that categorize the psalm's Psalm 51 is called a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of confession, and we know that already. But there's seven penitential psalms throughout the Psalter. I don't need to give you the context, the heading of the psalm will actually give us that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the psalm, and I'll make some observations about the psalm's prominent features. And then I want to conclude by asking two questions. First of all, If Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the psalms, which is what I suggested in the first week of our series, then the question is this. Could Jesus have prayed or sung Psalm 51? And then the second question, can we make any thematic or theological connection between these two psalms? So, Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, "'after he had gone in to Bathsheba. "'Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, "'According to the greatness of thy compassion, "'blot out transgressions. "'Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity "'and cleanse me from my sin. "'For I know my transgressions, "'and my sin is ever before me. "'Against thee, the only, I have sinned "'and done what is evil in thy sight, "'so that thou art justified when thou dost speak.' And blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou, art, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. So it is familiar to us. Psalm 51 is kind of made up of two parts. First of all, verses 1 through 9, David prays for reconciliation. And then verses 10 through 17, David prays, for restoration. Let's think about each of these in turn. First of all, reconciliation. Kind of the main thrusts of David's requests in the first part are in verse 1 through 3, and while he has one kind of overarching request, which we'll come to in a moment, he has three specific things he's asking for, and he's asking for them in three different ways using a variety of vocabulary. He says, "'Blot out transgressions, wash me from my iniquity,' and cleanse me from my sin. Now, why is David saying all these different things? Are they saying the same thing? Short answer, yes. David's not giving us three categories of sin. Rather, I think he's trying to describe the whole of his sin problem, that is, the totality of it. He wants to make sure that his confession is as far-reaching and comprehensive as his sinfulness is. David knows that he can't cleanse himself, because the stain of David's sin, just like yours and mine, it's not simply on the surface. It's not something that we can just brush away. It's deeply embedded within who we are, and David knows this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by nature. And David refers to this in verses 5 and 6, saying that even as a little baby or an infant, even in the womb, he knew that he was guilty. So he repeats his request again in verse 7, asking for God to cleanse him and make him whiter than snow, and again in verse 9, asking for his iniquities to be blotted out. So these are David's various ways of asking really for the same thing, asking for reconciliation. And what is his overarching request, the one kind of big thing he's asking for? Or maybe I would ask the question like this. On what basis did David believe that God would actually do this for him? What gave David the confidence or the assurance that if I come to God in confession, why will God actually hear me and then do what I'm asking for, which is to forgive me? Well, the answer to both of those questions are found in verse 1, where his overarching request is simply this, be gracious to me, O God. David is seeking God's grace. And then the basis for his request, what gives him the assurance that he can ask God to be gracious to him? Again, verse 1, according to thy, wait for it, loving kindness, steadfast love, this is the same word we saw in Psalm 48. This is God's hesed. David knew who it was that God had declared himself to be to Moses, which we read in Exodus a few moments ago. And so David's prayer for reconciliation is entirely based, entirely founded on God's gracious character. So David seeks reconciliation, but then he also seeks restoration. Because not only does sin create an uncleanness or a defilement that God has to cleanse, sin also creates a separation in our close fellowship with the Lord. And notice again that David uses a variety of phrases to ask for reconciliation. In verses 10 through 12, he asks for his spirit to be renewed. He asks to not be cast away from God's presence or for the Holy Spirit to be taken from him. And then he asked for the joy of his salvation to be restored. I think it's clear that David senses that he's been separated from God. Not in the sense uh, that his salvation has come into question. I think David was no more at risk of God removing the Holy Spirit from David as we are at risk of that. It wasn't going to happen. But that's the way that David felt. Experientially, his sin had caused within him to feel that he was separated from God in a significant way. Not grappling with the fact that maybe his relationship with God has been totally severed, but simply with the fact that his sin has caused the closeness of that relationship to have been damaged. He also asks for another way to be restored, and this is interesting. He asks, I think, for the restoration of ministry effectiveness, And I think we can understand this. He wants to be useful again in the Lord's service. He says that he will teach transgressors God's ways in verse 13. In verse 14, he will joyfully sing of God's righteousness. And then in verse 16 and 17, he talks about the kind of sacrifice that God will be pleased by. And just as an aside, I would say that we probably understand this you may have experienced that unconfessed sin in your own life probably keeps you from ministry effectiveness. If for no other reason that if we have unconfessed or secret sin in our lives, we probably want to distance ourselves from accountability among the church. But David wants that to be restored. But notice what he asks for in verse 17, where he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He asked to have a broken spirit. When we think of the word broken, what do we think about? Broken dishes, broken bones, broken down car, broken families. If you look at a thesaurus, it might give us a lot of D words for what broken means. Damaged, defeated, dispirited, dejected, discouraged, disrupted, demoralized. Is David saying that that's the kind of spirit that God wants people, his people to have? Well, no. But anyone that's worked with horses knows there's another usage of the word broken. And that is it's trained or subdued or docile or submissive. This is the kind of spirit that God wants in David. And of course, it's the kind of spirit that God wants in us that we would be docile and submissive to God's rule in our lives. A broken horse knows that he's not in charge. His master is in charge. And so David wants this broken spirit because I think it'd be fertile ground for humility and submission to grow and thrive. And then maybe unexpectedly, verses 18 and 19 conclude the psalm in a very different note. Um, I think these verses were certainly added later. I don't think David was the author of these verses, and that's okay. Commentators are agreed that it's no problem that David probably didn't write these two verses. doesn't mean they're not inspired. They are. But it actually helps us understand, I think, how the Psalms were used in the history of God's people. Because if these two verses were added later by, you know, an editor or compiler of the Psalms they were probably written when Israel was in exile in the Babylonian captivity. Um, And they were probably added so that the congregation would not just be able to use Psalm 51 in individual confession, which they should do and we should do, but I think these gave a way for the people of Israel in exile to use the psalm as a way of corporate confession. Because I think they probably knew that they had undergone a severe chastisement by God. They had undergone extreme judgment, being exiled from their homeland, Jerusalem being overrun, the temple destroyed. And they longed to return. They wanted to go back to Zion for the walls to be rebuilt, for the temple to be rebuilt. And they didn't just want to return because it was their home, but again, because of all the things you read in Psalm 48. Zion was the place where God dwelled on the earth, and they wanted to return there. But again, it is kind of odd, because these verses might seem to contradict what just came before. And I think I might have mentioned this in the first week of our survey, that sometimes we encounter these things in the Psalms that kind of make us scratch our heads, because it seems that David just said that God would not delight in sacrifices. And yet, verse 19 says, thou will delight in. In sacrifices, so what's happening here? Well, I think this also should help us remember that within that Old Testament ceremonial system of priestly worship and sacrificial offerings, all of those were shadows and types of what Jesus will ultimately fulfill in the New Testament. And these people, as they were living away from Jerusalem in exile. They wanted to return, and of course, ultimately, they needed to believe in the Messiah to come, but I think they wanted to see the shadow and type. They wanted to see what God was doing at the temple. I think these things were so ingrained in Israel's worship that being able to see the sacrifice being given, to see the smoke rising up from the altar, to see the blood being poured out on the altar or to see the scapegoat being sent out into the wilderness. These were important symbols for them because it pointed to the seriousness of their sin and it pointed them to their desperate need for a savior that they couldn't do this themselves and, of course, that these shadows and types had to be offered again and again and again. Now, certainly they still had available to them that inner cleansing, the inner reconciliation with God and Christ, the same that David had available to him, the same that you and I have available. But I think they still longed for something that they could see, to see that God's wrath had been averted again, to see that God was still in the business of forgiving sin. Because again, we can't forget that as they were living in the exile... It was still hundreds of years until they could see what we now see looking backward, that the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. That was the substance to which all of the symbols were pointing. And as much as they longed for those sacrifices to be made again to God, much more than that, they needed, just like you and I need, the once-for-all, perfect, sufficient offering of the Messiah the Lamb of God, offered without blemish, defect, or spot. Which perhaps brings us now to the question of Jesus in Psalm 51. Could Jesus have prayed or sung Psalm 51? Now, I think Jesus could certainly have prayed or sung Psalm 48, even self-consciously knowing that he was the fulfillment of everything that Psalm 48 was talking about regarding Zion. But, of course, Psalm 51 is a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of confession. So we need to press a little bit on Christopher Ashe's thesis that Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the psalms, that Jesus is the chief singer of the psalms, and that in order to sing and pray them, we need to sing and pray them in Christ. What does this mean for Psalms of Confession? Well, perhaps Mr. Ash's thesis falters at this point. Maybe we can only say that Jesus is the sum and substance of 143 of the Psalms and that he cannot be the sum and substance of Psalms of Confession. Or one solution could be to say that these Psalms of Confession, if nothing else, at least point us to Jesus And that ultimately, it is through him that we find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And of course, that's true and necessary, but it kind of just sidestepped the question. So, some might say, well, the question is foolish speculation, because we don't have anything in the Gospels that tells us that Jesus did pray Psalm 51, so don't ask that question, just kind of look the other way. Well, I think we can do better than that. And I think we can answer the question from a couple of different perspectives. And the first thing to think about might surprise you. But I think the first thing to think about is Jesus' baptism. Because Scripture tells us that John the Baptist preached and performed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why was Jesus baptized? He had no sin to repent of. He needed no forgiveness. He needed no cleansing. So why was Jesus baptized? I mean, John understood this dilemma. The Gospels tell us that John was hesitant to baptize Jesus. He didn't think it was right. But Jesus told him, no, this is the right thing to do. Well, we should realize that Jesus was baptized in order to identify with us, with his sinful people whom he had come to live and die for. Jesus was baptized not because he had sinned, but because we have. He was receiving John's sign of cleansing and forgiveness for us in our place. And secondly, I think this points to how we can understand that yes, Jesus can lead us in singing or praying Psalm 51, not because he has sinned, but because we have. Because we know from Scripture that all of our sin was placed, imputed to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus was made to be sin for us. He himself was not made to be a sinner, but all of our sin and guilt was placed upon his sinless person. And so actually, could it be that because of this, maybe Jesus is actually uniquely qualified to lead us in repentance because Jesus has already borne the terrible burden of our sin upon himself. Christopher Ash says this, quote, The agony and misery of our sin must have impacted the heart of Jesus more deeply than most of us have ever considered. If this is so we can join our wonderful representative substitute head in praying this psalm with a heart cry that comes from the spirit of Jesus himself, end quote. And then finally, is there a connection we can make between Psalm 48 and Psalm 51? And not just because Psalm 51 mentions Zion at the end. I think there's a better connection than that. And I think this connection lord willing can strengthen our faith in the same way that the sons of cora's faith were strengthened and that's regarding i think the assurance of who god is and the certainty of his forgiving our sin when we come to him in confession because as we saw in psalm 48 the sons of cora's faith was strengthened by the character of the god of zion Now while the holy city and the holy mountain may have been wonderful, it was the God of the holy city and the holy mountain that emboldened their faith. Because again, the sons of Korah knew who it was that God had revealed himself to be to Moses. God had obligated himself to be compassionate, gracious, full of loving kindness and truth. That's who God is. And in fact, as we saw, this is exactly What David was hanging his hope on. The only hope that David was hanging his hope on. What gave him confidence and assurance that even though he was a great sinner, God's grace was greater still. And that if he would come to God in repentance, God would most certainly hear him and give him the forgiveness and reconciliation that David needed. Not because of who David was, but because of who God was. And so Rod's going to come and lead us in singing Psalm 51. It's on your handout. Let me, actually, Samuel, let me see that real quick. I don't have it with me. Because I just want you to just notice. Of course, this is an English version, obviously notice what it is in the second line what it is that our plea is being founded upon what is the basis we have to ask God to forgive our sin it says God be merciful to me on thy grace I rest my plea there's nowhere else that we can rest it and so hopefully our assurance of pardon our assurance of the forgiveness of sin can be strengthened by Psalm 48 and Psalm 51. And really, I think the last verse of Psalm 48 kind of hammers this home where it says, for such is God. This is who God is, our God forever and ever.
1: Let's stand and sing. God be merciful to me On thy grace I rest my plea In thy vast abounding grace My transgressions all erase Wash me wholly from my sin Cleanse me, me, every will within For my sins before me rise Ever present to my eyes I have sinned against thee alone In thy sight this evil done That thy judgment may be clear And thy sentence just appear. Lo, brought forth was I in sin. When conceived I was unclean. Lo, thou dost desire to find truth sincere within the mind. And thou wilt within my heart wisdom unto me impart, then with hyssop sprinkle me, and from sin I clean shall be. Wash me from its stain, and lo. I shall whiter be than snow, make me hear joy's cheering voice, make my broken bones rejoice.